This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You are listening to Over and Back's Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s. Today's mystery is... What were the key ABA and NBA battles on and off the court? Before we continue the show, I want to tell you about a new HP Network podcast. You know that Nylon Calculus is the place to go for smart but accessible analysis of all things in the NBA. And now there's a new podcast called Nothing But Nylon. Hosted by Kevin Farragan, it is a place where NBA writers and researchers discuss their ideas and talk hoops and analytics. Check it out at nylonCalculus.com and on the Harbor Paroxysm Podcast Network. All right, welcome back to Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast. I am Jason. And a welcome back, uh, Rainus Lattice, to the program. Rainus, thank you so much for coming back. Uh, it's great being on again, and uh, it's great to have the opportunity to talk about the ABA, a truly exciting league. So um, I'm, I'm excited for, to talk about the, the league again. So we're going to chat about the, uh, the battles between the ABA and NBA, both on and off the court. We'll start with on the court and um, – Talking about the history of some of the exhibition games and the the super games that the uh, ABA and NBA played together. Uh, remember, the ABA has a fantastic article on this, which I'll link to in the show notes, which everyone should definitely uh, check out. But um, the uh, the interleague uh, games began in the uh, summer of '71. It was a time in which it looked like there was a mer- going to be a merger between the two leagues. Uh, in fact, there was there was a plan to have one that would include all the ABA teams except for Virginia. So 10 teams added to the league. Um, teams agreed to preseason interleague games for the first time. Uh, the merger talks eventually fell apart, but they decided to keep playing the uh, games uh, anyway. It was also during the, the summer, um, there was also an ABA-NBA interleague all-star game, which the NBA won uh, in a close game, 125 to 120. We'll get into the details about that in a little bit um most of the early interleague games were played in aba cities uh the nba teams didn't really want to um legitimize the aba teams by having them play at their homes so the results were not publicized by that much for, for the nba because they didn't want to legitimize the aba and by the aba because they pretty much in the first uh, few games they um 
mostly the NBA's way. What do you think about um, as far as what it meant to the ABA at the time, as far as you know, playing the interleague games? Um, you know, do you feel like that was something that, even though the results didn't go necessarily well for the ABA, that was important to the league just to you know just to be on the map a little bit more by playing the nba teams well looking back at it yeah i I do think that it was an opportunity they they really appreciated uh the the merger talks uh, obviously didn't didn't go through but at at least this gave them a chance to actually compete with nba teams and, and sort of sort of remind about their existence so uh, even even if the NBA didn't, if particular franchises didn't really acknowledge the results and, and may, perhaps didn't talk about them, uh, I think that it meant a lot for the players because uh, you you could sense that they that they wanted to prove that they did fit in the, that same professional basketball landscape. And even if the victories didn't come as as uh, as often as they would later on. The, the ones that uh, the ones the teams that became victorious in, in particular matchups, I, I think it gave them great pride that they could uh, step on the same court as NBA players and uh, prove to them that they are just as good at, or even better than uh, their competitors. Yeah, as you mentioned, the later years the ABA pulled ahead and they won the overall rivalry seventy nine to seventy six, and only two games refused to schedule exhibition games with ABA teams: the uh, Lakers and the uh, Cavs. The, the Cavs are an interesting inclusion there, you know. The, uh, the Jack and Cook, I think Cook was was fairly staunchly anti ABA, but it's interesting that the Cavs were included in that. I I, I don't uh, I, I don't know if there was maybe part of that is because there wasn't really an ABA city that close. Although you know Indianapolis is, is close enough, you would think there would be at least some interest there. But there were you know um, no no games there, so that, that's sort of interesting that they were included in that. Yeah, what boggles my mind is that there were owners like Red Auerbach, well, well, not owners, but the people who ran organizations like ran Red Auerbach, who publicly d- dismissed the ABA and its, and its players, but they would still play games from that very first summer on, and or I guess it mostly happened in, in autumn, but uh, why the Cleveland Cavaliers didn't participate in any of these, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not certain about that as well, but uh, most of the other teams, but despite the the conflicts they might have had, they pretty much uh, faced ABA teams from the very first season that those games happened. Yeah. Um, and speaking of Celtics, uh, you know, uh, Boston Globe sports writer Bob Ryan, he talked about, uh, it's mentioned in Loose Balls, but that, you know, when they began, the, the, the view in the ABA was now we'll show these guys, but, you know, the ABA teams won nearly as often as the NBA did and, and, and talked about the intensity of those games. And it was a surprise to him that the ABA uh, did so well in those games eventually. And um, also talked about how, um, it, like, you know, Billy Pulse, for instance, you know, um, really took it to uh, Dave Cowens and some of the individual matchups, you know, where he expected the NBA, you know, big men to dominate. That wasn't necessarily the uh, case, despite the NBA having the reputation at having the in, in, in reality, having most of the stronger big men, but still the uh, you know the ABA big men were able to bring it even if they were less heralded. And yeah, and as as you go through these accounts, it's it's also a fun exercise to uh, to think think about the the validity of of the the particular people the opinion particular people had because obviously the the ones on the side of the NBA say say that the games mattered more to the ABA franchises and that it was more so an exhibition for NBA teams while, while others on the ABA side would point to like, like Larry Brown and 
in Louis Boyles, he would point out that, hey, Tommy Heinsohn was saying that the Celts aren't trying to win as much as we are, yet he would play his regulars 34 to 40 minutes. And obviously, there are different accounts and different opinions, but uh, all in all, it, it seems like the games were competitive enough because, because at the end of the day, the NBA also, <laughs> I assume, didn't want to, to lose to a league they looked down upon, or at least some people looked down upon on it. Yeah, although Bob Nedelicki, when he was on, he talked about how... Um he didn't really think that there was necessarily that much extra intensity during those games. The the players knew who could play and there wasn't necessarily something extra to prove and that generally the players, you know, all NBA or ABA players were, you know, it was more of a brotherhood. There there wasn't necessarily the, um, you know, they weren't, didn't feel pitted against each other. It was more obviously the, the you know, management in, and, and on the coaching level where that was the intensity. So I thought that was sort of an interesting, um, different perspective. For the most part, there were fairly tense environments, fairly um, um, intense feelings, but that wasn't necessarily universally um, uh, thought of. Yeah, that, that's that's uh, uh, funny enough. That's the one thing our podcast shared that we both had Bob Nedelicki on, and I, I was also I also wanted to, to say this the same thing, and uh, uh, that's also. Uh, an interesting thing to look at because uh, the reports and stories of the in- intensity of the of those games vary. There certainly is proof, like the multiple ejections and the technicals that that were given out in these games. Yet, uh, as you said, Bob, Bob Nedelicki himself said that uh, said that uh, NBA players respected ABA players and that they that they basically were a fraternity and that more so it was a fault of of certain front office people. Well, although in a way I might be confusing intensity with uh, animosity, but uh, it definitely it definitely wasn't uh, about the players hating each other. It was more so about uh, the competitive spirit. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you know, and obviously different people feel different ways. But uh, yeah, there's certainly you know there's enough evidence that some people felt something to prove, and then you know the, the Pacers in. The, I get the feeling that they may have had just more confidence in themselves because of how they dominated the ABA. And, you know, that was a team that, um, uh, you know, may, may have had, there may have been a, a different feeling among the uh, Pacers than there may have been among some of the other NBA teams as well, just because uh, the other ABA teams as well, just because of, um, you know, the, the success that they, they had and, and the stability that they had. Yeah. And th- then there were people like uh, Larry Brown, who obviously felt that he had something to prove. Uh, I, I suppose it was his payback for being too short to play in the NBA or, or for them banning his buddy Doug Moe due to that alleged point-shaving sta- scandal. But he, he, of course, had to mention that fact, uh, I'm, I'm talking about Larry Brown here, that they beat the Knicks before their championship year in, in 72 and 73. And in fact, I, I went through the, the scores and Brown's Carolina Cougars had a record of 9-3 the, the two years he coached there. And oddly enough, none of their losses came against the the Knicks, the Celtics, or the Bucks, against whom they were victorious, and 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 then they wound, wound up losing against the Hawks and and the Suns. But yeah, different people, different agendas. So all in all, everybody had something to prove here. But uh, the the things they would take from from those games and those results vary from from their particular agendas. So the um, so some of the games that stand out, uh, obviously the first uh, ABA NBA um, All Star game, um, which, which was May twenty eighth, nineteen seventy one, in Houston. Um, there's a very good article about this from Twenty Second Timeouts, the blog by David Friedman. We mentioned it in our uh, in the previous episode we did together, 
and uh, Kareem actually was he was supposed to play for the NBA side, but he was married the uh, day before the game, and his roster spot was not filled. Um, Bill Russell coached the uh, NBA two years after he had retired, and Larry Brown was the uh, ABA coach. It was a close game, uh, 105 to uh, 100. Um, they used NBA rules in the first half, so 24-second shot clock and no three-point shot, and then ABA rules in the second half, 30-second shot clock and three-point shot. I guess that gives the ABA a slight advantage because the, the strategy of the three-pointer at the time, for the most part, was you shot it if you were behind you know, in the fourth quarter. A lot of coaches didn't like to use it beyond that. Um, some coaches did, but... Um, so I guess that did. There was a slight advantage there for the uh, ABA. Although I guess the you know the NBA they can use the three pointer as just as much. They're just not used to it. Um, and the uh, NBA led at halftime, sixty six to sixty four. Um, after Elvin Hayes made a, a buzzer beater, uh, and then the NBA had a ten point lead in the fourth quarter. Um, uh, Rick Barry and Charlie Scott, however, helped rally uh, to them within a point, 40 second, 47 seconds left, and then Oscar Robertson and uh, Clyde Frazier uh, sealed it with some uh, free throws uh, down the stretch. And uh, while Frazier had a game-high 26 points and won a car as the game MVP, so um, so I, I'm sure he needed another car, especially living in New York. But um, <laughs> uh, but but he... Uh, so, uh, you know, a, a, certainly a very competitive game. Um, you know, a... Uh, one interesting note here that um, I hadn't known about before reading is that um, the, the referees were from the NBA, and um, in the fourth quarter, the NBA All-Stars um, attempted 31 free throws, which would have been a single-game single, single game regular season record at the time. So they got a lot more free throws, even though they went 6-from-23 uh, from the field, and the ABA went 10-from-20 during the field in the fourth quarter. So it's sort of interesting, you know, maybe just the, uh, you know, the Oscar Robertson, Earl Monroe, John Havlicek getting, you know, all, all were players who could draw free throws. So maybe it was legitimate or maybe there was some bias, conscious or unconscious uh, during that situation. But I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, an, an article for, for the Houston Chronicle by Michael Murphy. I'm, I'm pretty certain I, f I found this at rememberTheaba.com. And even if I didn't, uh, you know, it's... Uh, any moment is a good moment for a, for a shout out for that page. But yeah, it, it the article contained the claims by Mel Daniels that 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 they were NBA reps and the calls started going against them, and uh, that they played well, but the situation with the refs uh, kind of kind of ruined the game. And yeah, it's uh, it's sad to hear that, and uh, there is seemingly some credence to his words, but. You know, there there might be some revisionist history to that because Mel also was quoted as saying that uh, they had them down big, and from from what I can tell, that it was a a, a back and forth game. So yeah, who, who knows? Uh, probably there's a bit of uh, truth to both sides. This one I don't believe we have we have footage of, so um, so, so so no one's going to be able to prove anything uh, here. But the fact that it was such a, a close competition is certainly uh, speaks well. I mean, I I think probably the expectations heading into it from a lot of people were that the uh, NBA would wipe, wipe the floor with them, but um, obviously uh, the ABA certainly put a good competition, and it, you know um, it, from what we know of the time, I mean the NBA was was. In 71, the NBA was probably still clearly the stronger league, but the top-end talent for the ABA was just as good as the top-end talent for the NBA. So that certainly fits in with with that. Yeah, and uh, I think it's it's still like a, a year or two before the ABA started uh, stealing away the really big stars like the Julius Irvings and the 
George McGuinness's. So in a way, you you don't expect ABA to win the, this first matchup. Yeah. Um, and uh, the first actual exhibition game, September 21st, 71, the Milwaukee Bucks beat the Dallas Chaparrales. Um, Kareem does play in this game. He has 32 points in the game. And uh, McCoy McLemore for the Bucks hits a, uh, a game-winning jumper with 11 seconds uh, left in the uh, in the game for uh, uh, to, to cap it off. But the uh, Dallas, not a particularly good uh, franchise uh, during this time. So it's interesting um, that that ended up being the... Uh, the team that was chosen, the the Bucks, of course, were uh, coming off of a, a a championship in '71 and were an extremely good team. So, um, a couple other games that stand out to me are one uh, a, a Sonics 117 uh, 93 win over the Pacers. This is the actually the only uh, interleague game that was booked in an NBA arena in '71. Uh, and oddly, the, the Pacers did not do well in the early exhibitions from 71 to 73, in which they, you know, they, they won two championships and were a very good team the other season. They went two and 13 um, and were actually seven and 15 overall in these exhibition games, which I, I guess maybe uh, the Pacers just did not uh, have a lot of intensity going into this game. Maybe that's what Neto was talking about, the fact that, uh, you know, maybe they didn't really uh, care so much about it. And they lost a lot of games to the Pistons of all teams as well, who were, you know, um, not really a, a great team for the most part during that time. So I, I found that interesting. Yeah, and perhaps uh, they just they just play the games at the wrong time because, even though uh, 71, 72, that's that's still a very good Indiana team. The the NBA, ABA interleague games coincide with the the, the downslide of Roger Brown. And if if Indiana had played against particular NBA teams like two or three years ago, when when probably they also had would have more to prove, as you really as you already alluded to, maybe they would have had an easier time back then. But all in all, yeah, that's that's still a very good Indiana Pacers team and. If, if the games matter, they probably should have had a, a better record and would have would have achieved that. You know, um, it also the Pacers, you know, by 72 and 73, their regular season performance, you know, their SRS is not particularly high and their, you know, the win totals are, you know, in the low mid 50s. So they're not necessarily playing at an elite level in the regular season, but they would step it up during the playoffs. So I wonder, I mean, you know, in the exhibition, they would even, there would be less incentive to try certainly than even in the regular season. So maybe it's just a, a case of them, you know, turning it on when it mattered yeah, as a veteran team that's already, you know, won championships and doesn't have really that much to prove. Yeah, and and they're playing uh, 82, 84 game seasons and mo- most of their star players would play like, 40 or 38 minutes for Slick Leonard. So, yeah, you, can, you can't even blame them that some games in the September wouldn't matter as much for them. I, it, it probably was a, uh, more so an exhibition game for them than, than for certain other teams in the ABA. Yeah. Um, and then the, the, the most notable game from 71 would be the, uh, the, the two champions, the Milwaukee Bucks and the, uh, and the uh, Utah Stars 122 to 114 a Bucks win um and it was a it was a sellout crowd dubbed the Super Bowl of basketball in Salt Lake City uh the Bucks were only ahead by one with five minutes left but uh were able to pull away during the stretch um 
Kareem had 36 points. Willie Wise had 33. Zelma Beatty had 29 points. And Oscar Robertson had 24 points. So a, a competitive game. I'm sure a, a fun matchup between, um, between you know, uh, Kareem, who was a transcendent, and Zelma Beatty, who had an awesome season, you know, one of the best um, seasons of the 70s, honestly, even though in, obviously, first career, he, he was very good, but not in Kareem's class as a player. But that certainly would have been an interesting matchup. You know, um, Beatty was somebody who Will Chamberlain talked about as being, you know, one of his tough defenders. So even though he would have been undersized against uh, Kareem in, in terms of height, uh, he would have been bigger and more powerful than Kareem. So seeing that matchup, I think, would, would have been fun. Yeah, he, he's the one who, who from from all the reports you, you, you get to read, he's the, he's the one who probably had all the all the tricks in the book uh, with which he could bother a, 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 a rather young Kareem Abdul-Jabbar at that point. So he pr- probably would have, would have a shot at, at least at uh, slowing him down and, and competing. And uh, as for the, the Super Bowl of basketball, I, I just the first uh, the first connection I have is that I wonder if whether Will Ferrell knew about this and whether it inspired the the Mega Ball and the movie Semi Pro. It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, it's so many ABA illusions in that uh, in that movie. The second Super Game, which is May twenty fifth, nineteen seventy two, exactly seven years before I was born, by the way. Um, was in Nassau Coliseum, and uh, the NBA actually threatened to fine or suspend any player who participated in the game, but that didn't stop the uh, the players from assembling an, another team, including six top 50 players. Um, Elgin Baylor was the coach for the NBA. Wilt Chamberlain was the team captain. Al Bianchi and Mel Daniels were uh, the ABA equivalents of that. Um, so so th- this game is on uh, on YouTube and uh, both the first three quarters of it, unfortunately, the fourth quarter of it um, is not on YouTube. It's, we, we talked about that a bit in our previous show. Um, what stands out to you as far as, you know, kind of your observations of the game? Yeah, uh, there are a few things. First off, uh, uh, I'm blanking on the name. What was uh, Donnie, Donnie Freeman uh, takes a charge in, in first quarter on uh, Archie Clark. So that definitely tells you something about all-star games back then you, you wouldn't see anyone taking a charge in 2016 in the all-star game and uh, what i found interesting was that the aba actually was quite dominant in the first half and they had a lead of 49th 30 after some quality play from julius irving ralph simpson and uh, george thompson i believe those were the three main guys who sparked that run but uh, f- but the NBA kind of uh, cut the league down before the half. It was down to six. And the the recording of, ga- of the game we have has uh, three or four player interviews, one with Wilt, one with Julius. And uh, the most interesting one was with Oscar Robertson, who was quite confident at the half. And uh, he was claiming that uh, the coach, Elgin Blair, is Baylor is giving everyone playing time. And in the second half, the NBA will go with guys that – know how to win such games and yeah that the, the ABA guys can play but uh, um, that he was pretty confident about them being the victors in the second half as it turned out to be uh, yeah um, and this is I, I think this would be the only unless they played some time during the um, exhibition I didn't check that but um, this would only be the only game with uh, Julius Irving and uh, Connie Hawkins on opposite teams at least you know of um uh, in at least in uh you know professional game even though it's an exhibition one yeah it must have been the the, the battle of the two claws the the guys with the extremely the big big hands back then yes. and the uh, julius actually 
the the disappearance of him actually ends up being uh, well not disappearance but the, the lack of his playing time actually ends up being the the big thing about this game as as uh, Hostrad Hundley actually talks about it during the broadcast he's he doesn't seem to be uh, one of his uh, coaches Al Bianchi's top 5 guys so he doesn't play almost any minutes in the third quarter during which the NBA uh, turn it into a back and forth game and we don't know actually what happened in the fourth quarter as there's no recording of it but it does seem like the ABA was playing the best with Julius on the court and they sort of uh, uh, let let uh, let that lead slip when he was on the bench and what's most what's most uh, amazing is that Al Bianchi was his coach at Virginia so he, you would think that he would actually play Julius more than he would play the other guys so that's and that sort of seems confusing to me. Yeah, I'm a little bit surprised as well. Yeah, uh, 22nd timeout does have um, an account of the fourth quarter, even though yeah, the, the, the foot is missing. But um, at the end of the game, um, Rick Barry hits a three-pointer with uh, 13 seconds left to cut the uh, NBA's lead to one. And then um, uh, Archie Clark gets fouled. Uh, he makes his first shot, misses the second one. There's a wild scramble for the rebound. And then Barry emerges with the ball. He tries a desperation three-pointer, and it falls short. And then the NBA wins 106 to uh, 104. Uh, Bob Lanier, he, he was slotted game MVP with 15 points. So uh, it came down to dramatic fashion. That sounds like that would be a wonderful thing to uh, see. And you mentioned the previous show, but there's a, a you know an incredible uh, dunk from uh, Julius Irving in uh, this game as well that is you know one of the ones that is brought up as as far as the you know fantastic ones it was a uh, similar to his famous um free throw line dunk that he had in the um in famously in the 76 dunk, dunk contest yeah and, and the fact that he pulled off with in a real game situation with oscar robertson right nearby or at least somewhere in, involved in the play it makes it even more miraculous and it's it's almost like somebody's I don't know that it's it's the fact that this game exists during for the first three quarters and there's none footage of the fourth quarter. It's somebody's playing a trick on us. I, I don't know. Yes, and is. actually, actually, there Julius does appear to dunk in the second quarter, or, or at least it seems so, judging from the reactions of Don Cricky and Hotrod Hundley. But this game does have some uh, some temporary problems in uh, in regards to the video track and the one time he does something uh, as spectacular as that during the first three quarters it's also invisible to us there, there are a, a couple of layups there but the, the two dunks he made are the ones we, which we can't see you're right somebody's playing a trick on us unfortunately 1972 um there is a, a hawks colonels a 112 99 game it's one of the two games that irving played for the hawks he had uh, 20 points and 18 rebounds in 42 minutes uh, in the NBA finds the Hawks $25,000 because the Bucks had drafted Irving. So this leads to a situation where Irving um, ends up going back to the uh, ABA and playing for the Squires for a second season. Uh, in 73, there is um, a Nets-Knicks exhibition game where um, the Nets win 97 to 87. Uh, the uh, the Knicks had been uh, NBA champions the in the seventy three season, so the, the the Nets beat them soon after acquiring Julius Irving. It's uh, at Madison Square Garden. Uh, Irving has twenty seven points, and Frazier has twenty five points for the uh, Knicks. Um, 
In 74, there is a, a, a Nets-Bullets uh, overtime game. The Nets win 101-98. to um, It's in Washington, D.C. And uh, the, the interesting thing about this is that five Nets players, including Irving, have to wear Bullets road uniforms because there's a luggage <laughs> mix-up. Um, so that, that one I... Uh, uh, that one's fun for that. I guess it's nice that the the bullets and nets uniforms at, you were would have been fairly close to each other, at least in terms of the colors. So they could uh, they could somehow make that work. But I, I, I found that interesting. There it reminds me of some of the other ABA stories about like you know lug, uniforms being missing or you know where they have to turn you know um, a home uniform inside out for, to play in the game or things like that. You know uh, that's a that's a fun one. Yeah, I hope I'm not blasting Earl Foreman here. Uh... Well, it's not the actual truth, but I do think I remember something about uh, his teams not having any money towards the the latter parts of the ABA, and then uh, he would borrow money for for cleaning uniforms or something along those lines. I think there was definitely something yeah, some, similar to that. You're right. Yeah, it's a. Um, I believe that you know the sheriffs or police you know show up and are wanting to basically repossess the uniforms because of the cleaning bill, and then um, I, I forget it, who it might have been Dick Tinkham or somebody who is quoted often in that in the book who was a you know executive for one of the teams basically is like you know yeah you know, you're not really gonna you know you're not gonna stop us from playing this game we're just gonna give them the road uniforms so you might as well you know, you kind of smooth things over and eventually he was able to pay the bill but uh, but yes it, it's a one of those. Uh, uh, only in the 70s, only in the ABA type story. Um, in uh, in 74, there's uh, the first game in Market Square Arena between the Pacers and the Bucks. The Pacers win 118 to 115. Uh, it's an ABA record crowd of um, 17,287. Bob Dandridge has 46 points in the game. Kareem has four, 26 points. George McGinnis has 24 points. You actually talked to Bob Nedelikli a little bit about this um, game in your podcast with him. Is there anything that stands out to you that, uh, you know, um, beyond what I just said? Well, all all of the accounts just uh, have, have glowing glowing reports from from Pacers fans. It's it really is a for, for an exhibition game. It really goes down in Pacers history as a monument monumental game, and and it speaks to the I, I probably the the event of open up opening up a new arena was was important, but it's it speaks to the fact how how big the showdown was before between the Bucks and the Pacers and mind you the Pacers are sort of sort of towards the tail end of their fairy tale it's it's the last season of George McGinnis and he didn't have a, a that good of a supporting cast so then pulling out this victory is something that goes down in, in Pacers history as a as a fine moment so yeah it, it's it's uh, I definitely wanted to touch on this game it it is one of the most most uh i don't know fa- famous aba nba contests in uh 75 there's a few that are interesting um the last season where they would have done exhibitions before the um, merger uh the stars uh, beat the sonics 122 to 119 and the two teams combined and I, I can hardly believe this for 119 shots from the free throw line uh during the <laughs> game uh leonard gray for the sonics is ejected for punching steve green of the stars uh, ron boone has 23 points which i uh, <laughs> I can't even imagine how um, what the story behind that was. I, I couldn't find anything more about it beyond that, but that's um, definitely. I'm probably. I'm glad that one doesn't have any video footage, quite frankly, because I think that <laughs> yeah. would set basketball back quite a bit if we were able to see that. Um, 75 also has the matchup between the previous NBA and ABA champions, the Colonels and the Warriors. The Colonels win 93 to 90. Actually, surprisingly low attendance. Uh, only drew 88,000 in Louisville. Um, 
uh, Marv Roberts at 20 points for the Colonels. Uh, uh, Artis Gilmore, 14 points, 11 rebounds. Uh, Rick Berry has, a, has an off game, uh, 9 points of 3 from 11 for the field and a 3-point air ball with 31 seconds left in the uh, game. So uh, the fact that the Warriors kept it so close despite Berry playing so poorly, um, they, they made it pretty competitive. The Colonels are obviously able to pull that off. Issel must have been traded at this point because this would have been during the offseason when he was traded first at the Claws and then ended up at the Nuggets. So um, so the Colonels would not have been at full strength, but still, um, interesting game nonetheless. Yeah, and this is really the year where, first off, the amount of games seems uh, the the biggest between from all of, from all of the NBA ABA contest uh, off seasons, and this is also the year where you can notice uh, a a real a real advantage towards the ABA, and they really shredded the NBA apart, both both the average teams and the good teams there. I'm not sure of the record, but uh, they quite they were quite dominant this off, and which would ultimately be the last off season. Yeah, you're right, and uh, which is interesting because several of the ABA teams, of course, are about to fold, and 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 they're you know very weak uh, on the court. Um, as we mentioned, the, you know the ABA was kind of top heavy at this point in the. Um, the premier franchises were were very good, and the the bad franchises were had very little talent. So um, the fact that that even the lesser teams seem to do pretty well is um, is interesting. Um, speaking of lesser teams, the uh, Baltimore Claws they had one of uh, three games they ever played in their history. Uh, they lost to the Sixers one hundred three to eighty two. Uh, Doug Collins had twenty eight points for the Sixers. I'm not sure if Dan Issel actually played in this game or not, but um, I, I know he. I'm not sure he ever. He was on the Claws franchise, but I'm not sure he ever actually played a game for the uh, Claws. I can't remember if he, if he ever mentioned that, and uh, if that was ever mentioned in Loose Balls or any of the other uh, articles I read in the Claws. But um, I'm actually sa- sad about the fact that they could have played at least one game as the Baltimore Hustlers, and it never happened. That this would have been <laughs> it would have been the the time to do it. Yes, yes, that would have that would have been glorious. Yes. Um, the uh, 75, uh, it sounds like a very fun game between the Warriors and the Nets. Warriors won 119-114, to 114, and Rick Barry had 49 points, and Julius Irving had 43 points. I can only imagine the uh, uh, the duel that those two had, but that sounds, uh, of any of these games, that may have been the one that I would like to see the most. Yeah, probably. They are, well, Barry had, had torn his knee up before beforehand, but two superstar small forwards, probably the best in the, each of their and in, in their positions in in their particular league and just facing up in their crimes it would have been awesome and i just love the fact that uh, you know barry was on both sides of these contests he obviously switched leagues twice but no matter which side he's on he's just getting technicals and, and ejections in all of those games so yes. it did the aba nba rivalry didn't matter to barry he he would have found a reason to be to be uh, angry at each of these games. Yes, yeah, he had no problem being angry whoever was in front of him, that's for sure. Uh, and in the last game uh, of interest, it may have been the last, uh, may, may have been the last exhibition game period. Um, uh, the uh, the Sixers one thirty one, the Pacers one twenty nine in two overtimes, and uh, this George McGinnis the first time he faced the Pacers um, as a seventy Sixers player. Uh, 27 points in that game. Billy Knight had 29 points. Steve Mix for the Sixers had 24 points. Uh, Fred Carter for the Sixers had 22 points. And Dan Roundwood for the um, Pacers had 21 points. So uh, sounds like an exciting game as well. And uh, I, f- I think uh, there there is a, a story of McGinnis uh, returning to Indiana and uh, receiving a standing ovation. Uh, the, the crowd wasn't... They, they understood the situation. They knew that the Pacers team was on the downfall and that 
McGinnis would earn more money in the NBA. So they they weren't even mad at him for for returning in a other uniform, and they received him quite well. well that's nice to hear. Obviously, you know, obviously he spoke highly of his years in Indiana. After didn't really necessarily want to leave Indiana. It was just sort of a, a situation where at that point, you know, the Pacers had no money to um, pay him, and he was you know just looking for uh, looking for a better situation for him, which he got in you know in in Philly. Um, so looking at the um, the theoretical finals matchups, if we took the team that won the NBA championship and the ABA championship for each year's that the uh, two leagues were in existence, uh, going head to head, we just want to kind of want to touch on a little bit, um, you know, the who who might win a theoretical um, matchup between these teams. And the first year, the uh, Pittsburgh Pipers, uh, led by uh, Connie Hawkins. And the uh, the Boston Celtics, of course, with uh, Bill Russell, John Havlicek, uh, Sam Jones. This is 1968. This is the second to last year for a Russell dynasty. So the Celtics are still a strong team, but are aging. The Pipers, um, you know, have some good players, but other than Hawkins, are not particularly a deep team. I, I would say that the key for this series would be the Celtics defense being able to counter the individual brilliance of um of hawkins and also the fact that you know um the the big men for the pipers really not being able to even though russell certainly not a big scoring threat during this time the pipers did not have any kind of big man who would even compare to um uh, to uh russell during this time so i would say that the celtics would almost certainly be the likely winner of this series yeah, uh, the the first year of the ABA just was too chaotic for me to even consider the Pipers here against the Celtics dynasty. Twenty one players stepped on the court for the Pipers that year, which <laughs> reminds me of this year's Memphis Grizzlies and yeah, guys like Art Heyman and Chico Wan averaged twenty points per game, huge improve improvements for them when compared to their previous years in the NBA. So I, I think those first two three years have the most cases of ABA stats being fluky. And uh, I think that, yeah, the, the Celtics would run their mean green machine and the, the, the Pipers the Pipers players would, would get lost in it. They would, uh, I, I think they would pick on the, the, their weaknesses and uh, just out, outrun them with their, with their traditional uh, fast court basketball of, of Russell defending the rim and then, then just outletting towards whoever's, whoever can uh, run the break. Yeah, uh, I, the, the one wrench that I would put in this is if the Pipers, if, if there was a three-point line, whether it was for the whole series or for the home games or what have you, I do think that the, the Pipers were keyed a lot by the three-pointer, and that would add an interesting wrench to the um, the proceedings. I mean, Vaughn and Charlie Williams both were you know very good three-point shooters, both percentage and volume uh, you know, for, for the time. So I do think there, that is the only kind of thing where I would, would say, well, maybe there's a shot, at least they could take a, a game or two, but... But, but yes, overall, definitely, it's it would have to be Boston series. There would have been a, a game three, which the Pipers won thanks to a barrage of three pointers and make it one two, and the red chokes on a cigar and <laughs> right. without all these youngins <laughs> shooting these threes. What the hell are they doing? Yes. But yeah, it would end in four one Celtics. Yes, uh, the um, uh, so the sixty nine one is really interesting to me. The Oakland Oaks who have. Um, Rick Barry, uh, Doug Moe, uh, Larry Brown, and Orange Bali against the uh, Boston Celtics, who, uh, of course, you know have, have, a, have a similar squad to the uh, 69 team, but are a year older. Um, Russell and Sam Jones sort of slowing down uh, during this time. 
um Havlicek really uh, you know stepping up during this season and in, in is is he's already a very he's already a great player but even um greater they were in in terms of record they were they were a weaker team but they actually had a stronger SRS that season a 5.35 the Oaks have one of the best SRSs in um ABA history with a 7.6 SRS and while certainly you know the as you mentioned the ABA years early are fairly weak I, I do think there is enough. You know, Jim, Jim Eakins is in this team on this team as well, and he's a fairly um, you know he, he would be a strong uh, big man in the uh, in the ABA, and I and certainly they are at a disadvantage at that position. But I do think you know Doug Moe as a wing defender, you know whether he's taking a Havlicek or Bailey Howell, you know um, whether the Celtics have someone who can effectively defend um, Rick Barry. Um, you know, whether Larry Brown is big enough to compete with the uh, Celtics guards. I would, especially, we do have to very much consider whether, you know, because Barry was not healthy for the actual um, ABA finals, but if we're putting both teams at full strength, I do think the Oaks might have a shot at being the Celtics here, um, especially if Barry is healthy. Without, I would definitely pick the uh, Celtics, but it's a... It's definitely an interesting choice, and, and how the Celtics are able to defend someone like Dybali as well, who is just all these, you know, this incredible rebounding for size and this incredible toughness, and um, you know whether Havlicek could have handled him or how that all shakes out. I, I think that's really interesting. A lot of a lot of interesting theoreticals in that series. Yeah, uh, the question for me is, do the do the Oaks have a healthy Rick Barry? Because if if that's a scenario we're playing here. I'm I'm crazy enough to say that it's I I'm I'm leaning with the Oaks here because this Celtics team was in its last fumes. Russell and Sam Jones would would retire after a year, and in a way, it's a it's a miracle that they get past that Laker the Lakers team in that legendary final series. Obviously, the the strength of teams in the first years of the ABA has to be taken account, but when you look at being first in both offensive and defensive ratings, that that's something unheard of. So. I think I actually would have the Oaks over the Celts without Barry. I, I do believe that age is a factor here, and that the collective power of Jabali, Mo, and Barry it would would be too much for the Celtics' uh, perimeter players. So yeah, I'm, I'm going with the Oaks. As as mad as it, that might sound, because <laughs> given the fact how how great the Celtics franchise was back then. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing I, I would say is I do think the this Oaks team is better than the Warriors team that um, Barry took to the finals a couple seasons before in the NBA. And um, and the, certainly these Celtics are not as good as the 76ers and the Warriors. You know, they, they took that 76ers team to six games and had a pretty competitive series. So I think, you know, given what we know about Barry against NBA competition, I feel like I, I'm willing to go ahead and, and go with that, you know. I, I think we I think we're on some decent ground here to uh, say that the Oaks would win with Barry. So we'll go ahead and make that if, the official um, prediction. Um, in 1970, the the Pacers against the uh, Knicks. Uh, a lot of similarities between these teams, really. I mean, um, you know, you think of Freddie Lewis and uh, Clyde Frazier, Mel Daniels and Willis Reed, um, you know, R- Roger Brown. Uh, I, I think he would be the, probably the best individual player here in 1970. You, maybe you could make that argument for Frazier or maybe even for, I don't know, Reed and Daniels, I think, are a pretty good um, kind of canceling each other out. But, you know, obviously um, the Knicks have DeBusher as, you know, a rugged defender. Um, they probably have a stronger bench, although the Pacers, they have a really good, you know, they have, they you know, they're, they have their other key players, uh, 
Ned Alicki, Billy Keller. Um, you know, they're probably not quite as deep as they would be later on in the seventies, uh, and they were definitely the weaker regular season team. They only had a two point six seven SRS. The Knicks have the have an eight point four two SRS, one of the best in the uh, league during that time. And um, you know, they have Dick Barnett. They have um, uh, they have Kazi Russell coming off the bench. So. Uh, I would probably have to go with the the Knicks here, um, but I do wonder because I'm not you know DeBusher is kind of their stout defensive player, but he's I think he's probably going to be a little bit too slow to defend Roger Brown. Yeah, and the thing is that given what I've heard, seen, and read about Roger Brown, there real, literally was no stopping him. He he put together some amazing playoff games at this point, so. Uh, I sort of looked at it this at this by by taking the safe way out and saying that when two great teams meet each other at least twice, uh, you know the the seventy three Knicks and seventy three Pacers also have a hypothetical matchup that that such teams usually split their finals matchups. So I, I would believe more so in the nineteen seventy Pacers if if either of those Pacers teams would be ever capable of beating the Knicks, and I and I'd bet on a. Roger Brown in his prime being able to to score despite uh, w- whatever the Knicks can put up, up against him in this case being it being Dave DeBusher. Yeah, I, one thing that Frazier would have that size advantage over Lewis because Lewis was about six f- foot, so that that would be big. Also, Reed's outside shooting might give him an advantage over Daniels, although I think Daniels would probably be a, a bit of a better rebounder. So, yeah, I um. I, I think it's kind of a too close to call situation. I kind of agree with you on on both the seventy and seventy three situations are are very close to call, and those teams both evolved in similar ways too, which we'll, we'll get to a little bit in seventy three. But um, I'm willing to go with that. The um, seventy one is the Milwaukee Bucks and the uh, and the Utah Stars. Uh, I, you know, I think the biggest advantage here is just Kareem Abdul-Jabbar just being fantastic, and even though they, the the um, Stars have Zemo Beatty. Um, and he, he was extremely good that season. I, I, I think I believe in Kareem here. Um, and, and the Bucks were one of the most dominant teams in um, in basketball history in the regular season. Eleven point nine one SRS, which I think is the uh, which is the record. So the Stars, you very good in their league and very competitive. And they, you know they had some real good depth with um, with Willie Wise and those guys. But um, you know the Bucks obviously have Oscar Robertson. I, I think they have the advantage at. Guard, I think they they pretty much have the advantage at the at the key positions. Although I do think probably overall the stars have more good players. Um, you know they have um, that Ron Boone's emerging. They have Merv Jackson, Red Robbins, and Glenn Combs. Um, you know, I mean the the Bucks of Dandridge and stuff too. So I mean, both both teams are are fairly deep. This is the the deepest of the. Um, Bucks teams that they would kind of be hurting for depth a, a little bit later as as Robertson got older, but um, they Bob Boozer as well. So I, I would say the Bucks are are probably a, a pretty handy winner here, but um, I, I think the Stars would would give them a tough fight. Yeah, it's it's tough for me to to make these decisions based based on the greatness of NBA players. When I I admittedly love the ABA and do think that some of their stars are underrated, but. Would would Zelmo Beatty really be capable of slowing down Kareem in this series? I, I think that's the biggest question. And as, as much old man tricks as he had, it's it, the answer is probably a no. And then there's of course Oscar, and I, I don't know who who the Utah Stars put up against him. I guess it would be really Wise. Then that's also a, a, a so-so matchup. Although Wise at least has a as a youth advantage here, 
but yeah, it, it comes down to the fact that it's it's tough to take the stars over uh, a dominant Abdul-Jabbar with, with the help of Dandridge, uh, Robertson, and McLaughlin, of course. Yeah, absolutely. 1972, the Pacers and the uh, Lakers. Uh, Lakers, uh, one of the great dominant teams of all time, of course, 69 wins in 33 games in a row. And I, I certainly believe in the Pacers being a, you know, a, a, a tough, crafty team. And they had um, they had even more depth this year with McGinnis had come in. Rick Mount was, uh, even though his, his time in, um, in, in Pacers wasn't really very happy for him, he was scoring pretty well. Darnell Hillman is there, um, but I, I, the, the the Pacers did not achieve in the regular season, even though the roster looks stacked. They were only 47 wins and uh, a 2.72 SRS compared to the 69 wins for the Lakers, 11.65 SRS. And, you know, but at this point, I'm sure the, I think the leagues were pretty close to equal, but just the Lakers dominance over their league can, compared to the Pacers dominance over their league. I, I don't think that the Pacers have an answer for Wilt at all. Um so I, I would have to go with the Lakers in this uh, series. Um, you know, I, I give some respect to the, to the Pacers, but I just think the Lakers are going to be too much here. Yeah, and, and it speaks to something you you alluded to previously, that the Pacers just didn't have the, the best regular seasons. And it seems like they they would put, put it, pull it together for the playoffs and they were capable to, of beating teams with their collective cohesiveness and, and the chemistry they had. But yeah, it's, it's just tough to take... Uh, this Pacers team, which won uh, 47 games against uh, an all-time Lakers team with two top 15 guys of all time in, in Chamberlain and Jerry West, and just uh, just a team with a 33-game winning streak. And yeah, it's 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 it seems unfair that we're praising the the NBA teams against whom the Pacers are going up against here, the the Knicks and the Lakers. But man, those those really are some teams for for the ages. So they they would have a tough matchup against them. Yeah. Uh, 73 is the Pacers and Knicks again. Um, I do think the McGinnis and DeBusher matchup will be really fascinating. With DeBusher's getting older here, but he still has that you know that rugged toughness, and and McGinnis is such a physical player, and to see them kind of you know play as well as how you know kind of Monroe fits into things, um, you know how he would match up with uh, Freddie Lewis and jerry lucas's outside shooting what element that would bring i do think that um you know in the uh this is kind of a good um even though the pacers older players are aging you know mcginnis is kind of emerging into his uh prime they're both very deep teams i mean the 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 knicks have six hall of famers um you know plus two all plus two all fame coaches uh on their roster and the pacers are a who's who of the greatest players in in aba history so it like i said i i think i can concur that you know most like most like a situation would be the knicks winning one series and the pacers winning the other series yeah and uh david the busher is is almost like uh a a typical forward from the from the late 60s early 70s well george mcginnis <laughs> would be a specimen even today so that's that's the one key they that they don't have three years ago that george mcginnis is young he's 22 and he probably would demolish uh, his matchup individually but uh, on the other hand roger brown is no more the the roger brown uh, everybody knows he averaged only 12.6 points per game in the playoffs. That's that's pretty low for him. So I, I do believe that. Oh no, the, the 70s team ha- has a better shot at it, th- despite the addition of McGinnis. And I, I think they they would be beaten handily in in, in 73. Uh, they ju- they are just too old for me. The 74 team matchup is the the Celtics um, with a 3.42 SRS. Uh, 
having uh, Dave Cowens, uh, John Havlicek, of course, uh, Jojo White, uh, Paul Silas, and the uh, the Nets with uh, Julius Irving, uh, Larry Keenan, Billy Pultz, uh, Brian Taylor. The the Nets a very young team. The uh, Celtics uh, are Havlicek and Silas are older. Cowens and Jojo White are more in their prime. So. Um, this is a tough one. I don't know if anyone on the Celtics is really equipped to stop Irving, but I do think that the depth and experience for the Celtics uh, obviously is, uh, is certainly an advantage. Yeah, and in my opinion, the Celtics score is a bit better, so a lot of it would depend on Julius and whether he could be the best player in the series, since it should be somewhat close. And you know, for, for for a lot of for a lot of times, Julius showed that he could he could do that, but the Celtics might be a bit too steep of a hill for him to climb alone. So I'm leaning more so Boston's way because of their because of their collective talent. But on the other hand, this team with Larry Keane and Billy Paltz and Wendell Ladner, I, I think it's deep enough for the Nets to have a decent shot. You, and we'll get 76, but they don't have that amount of depth this time or that time around so i think it would have the, the nets would have a decent shot and for, for what it's worth the, the celtics beat the nets before the 73 74 season by 19 thanks to 37 points of a check so that shows what i know but i i think they they could compete but yeah, overall, I think the Celtics are better. Yeah, I w- yeah, I would agree. I think it's fairly close to a toss-up, but um, I, 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 you know, it, it would depend on on how well the, you know, the Celtics could uh, contain Irving or you know just contain the options around him and you know make him not necessarily be you know as complete of a player. So, uh, but that would be a fun one. I, I that's and, one of the series I would enjoy the most. And also a lot, of, a lot, of, a lot of it depends on. Billy Pauls and Larry Keenan, two two ra- rather young guys going up against the veterans and Dave Cowens and Paul Silas, who certainly know every trick in the book, and they would have to step up and uh, be ready to compete against two, those two guys. It certainly would be a battle on the boards. They would have to they would have to at least be competitive in order to have the in order for the Nets to have a chance. Absolutely. The uh, so seventy five. The um, Golden State Warriors with a two point eight six SRS. The Kentucky Colonels six point two four. The uh, I, I think the the biggest keys here are just Artis Gilmore. The the Warriors do not really have a great uh, you know um, option for defending him. But then again, the Colonels had been upset a few seasons before. Uh, by the Rick Barry-led Nets. So I, I do think Rick Barry had proven himself to be a, a problem against the Colonels, and that would be a tough situation for them. Uh, both the Warriors and Colonels are interesting because both of those teams were famous for going 10 deep. So they like to they like to use a lot of players and, and, and share a lot of the load. And, um, yeah, I, I can't, you know, really say particularly you know whether there's a an advantage a particularly strong advantage anywhere else i mean i um you know jamal wilkes obviously well he was a rookie and emerging for the uh um warriors a, a key piece for the team but not necessarily a, a star yet where you know Issel may have been a, a a little bit of trouble for the um warriors to contain uh, dampier aging at this point still effective but not you know quite the player that he had been but you know whether you know like a a butch beard can contain him a, a lot of interesting matchups uh do you think that the colonels just you based on their regular season success i, I would definitely place them as a favorite and I, again it would be hard for them to stop gilmore but there there's enough uncertainty there where i would at least you know would, would think about it 
Yeah, I I basically agree. I think I think the advantage up front would would decide the series. I just can't see how the Warriors could handle Artis Gilmore and Dennis. So with all due respect to Clipper Dre and George Johnson and Jamal Wilkes probably would have been involved in those matchups as well. But uh, despite Rick Barry probably averaging close to 40 or, or something, I I have the Colonels being as the better team. But as you said, there's there, they had plenty of uh, mishaps in, in the playoffs, and this Warriors team in particular was known for be playing against the odds and beating the superior team. So there, there is a this, this sort of uh, feel feel to the series that anything could happen. But I, I believe the Colonels being the, the best team, so I, I would go with them. And what's what's interesting is that uh, remember the ABA had a, a footnote that uh, after this after this regular season the. Cardinals actually challenged the Golden State Warriors to a World Series of Basketball with the winner stake a $1 million purse, but uh, the Warriors reportedly refused the challenge, although they did wound up playing uh, next fall with the Cardinals winning by three. That's that's the game where you mentioned where Barry shot a three-point air ball with 31 seconds left in the game. So uh, I don't know whether they decided to play either way or, or something did actually happen in regards to the TV revenues generating generated during that game, but there was an actual matchup between the two of them. Yeah, um, yeah, it's kind of neat that they they did play. I mean, one of the two, I, I believe, it's two instances of the champions um, playing each other. You know, in the, the season afterwards. So, um, the last one, the 1976, um, would be the Boston Celtics, a 2.25 SRS, and the Nets with a 2.56 SRS. Um, as in 74, I think the, the key differences are the better depth for the uh, Celtics, but with Irving's uh, individual brilliance. The, the Nets are, are a more experienced but not quite as talented team. Um, the uh, the Celtics are you, aging at this point. Havlicek is 35, and um, so, you know, you're, you're, you're getting to a point, uh, you know, Jojo White's 29. Very good team, but it, it would be tough. I, I think that Irving being even further into his prime and even further into his brilliance and the way that he played in 76, I would probably give it uh, to the Nets in the situation, but it, it is very close. And um, I, I do think the Celtics still have the overall team, but I, I think I can, I feel like I can count on Irving here even more than in 74 to be able to kind of pull it through. Yeah, what what scares me about is is the depth you talked about, and the Celtics have a, a notable addition in Charlie Scott, with with whom Irving played. Yeah, and but uh, as you said, the Celtics uh, core is getting older, and if if it goes down to a game six or game seven, I I can uh, or game seven probably, I can imagine Irving having one of those forty point and twenty rebound games, and there there doesn't seem to be a thing that uh, Celtics could do about it. I, I don't know who who would be checking him. It would probably be Havlicek, but you know he's a, he's sort of a player from a, from a different generation and is an example of how in the NBA NBA sort of the NBA sort of had these veteran forwards in their thirties who just played a different game in in comparison to the Irvings and Gervins and David Thompsons who soon joined the league from the ABA so it would have been interesting matchup wise what 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 would have the Celtics done as as a rather old team against the, the high flying Julius Irving and then John Williamson obviously himself who was no slouch maybe he was more of a grounded player but it would 
been tough physically defending him as well. Yeah, uh, yeah, and you might have gotten a sense of what the um, the Blazers did in '77 with Bob Gross, who's kind of that sort of similar style small forward, where you know their tactic was to make Irving run as much as possible, and you know play really hard on defense to kind of tire him out a little bit on offense. And even though um, you know, Irving was very effective in those in those finals, but it still you know was a strategy that did help the uh, Blazers win that series. So you you may have seen if they had certainly thought of that, you may have seen the Celtics try that. I mean, they obviously. I don't know if Irving would have definitely necessarily been defending Havlicek, but if, you know, if he had been, Havlicek was, you know, famed despite his age for his tirelessness and maybe just, you know, running him, um, trying to run Irving off the court may have been, you know, the best strategy they had. And that series is also similar from a point of view, and and I'm scared of this topic, so I'll I'll, uh, sort of just allude to it and and that's it. But there is also some certain racial undertones that the Blazers were, Similarly to the Celtics, a, a white team from most of their players were NBA, from NBA experience and supposedly play the right way. And he, here are the the 76ers led by Julius Irving and George McGinnis who could attempt all these flashy things and, you know, s- sort of played what uh, people considered to be uh, street ball. Yes. Well, and ironically, of course, the 77 season, once Irving's in the NBA, the Sixers beat the uh, Celtics in, in a seven game series in the 77, you know, a, a similar Celtics team versus, you know, obviously a, a team down about Irving. And then you know, in that case, the, uh, the the more streetball team, you know, won the series against the vaunted uh, uh, Celtics. So uh, even though, you know, um, the, the the in the finals, it worked out differently because obviously the Blazers had more talent and and uh, and, and balance. But uh Irving was the one who finally dethroned the Celtics from the top of the NBA, which, you know, some interesting irony there. Yeah. So, um, so Rennes, is there anything else you'd like to talk about as far as the uh, ABA NBA matchups? Yeah. Well, one, one small thing is that uh, we, we talked about all of these uh, champions going up against each other and uh, uh, ultimately certain uh, ABA teams did go deep in the NBA playoffs and have their success. If, if you look at the 78 Nuggets, they had a rotation full of ABA guys from David Thompson, Dan Issel, Bobby Jones to, to uh, role players like Darnell Hillman and the 70 Spurs, 79 Spurs, excuse me, did the same with Gervin, Larry Keene and James Silas, their top eight guys in minutes, all were ABA originals. So even if they didn't win a title, the, the ABA certainly proved it after, after the merger that teams full of uh, ABA players could compete and, uh, you know, uh, participate at the highest, highest level and uh, reach the conference finals. Yeah, and I'm having another episode with um, Adam Johnson where we're going to talk a lot about how the ABA teams themselves did in the uh, NBA and some of the you know the key players how they uh, did, and of course you know famously, uh, half of the starting lineups of the um, '77 Finals were former ABA players, and um, and you know many of the All Stars. I, I think ten of the twenty four All Stars were from the ABA. So, um, so obviously at that point, you know the the ABA demonstrated you know how much it belonged in the league, and you know and how much they had accomplished, and you know represented themselves very well in the league so uh so thank you so much Rainus, for uh being on the show uh, do you want to tell everyone a little bit about your podcast and youtube channel yeah uh i stumbled <laughs> i stumbled through all, all of the things i do last time around so this time i'll just i'll just keep it short uh, that uh listeners of, of your show can uh, find the handle podcast on itunes or on lamarmatic.com and uh, on the podcast i interview former aba and nba players um at this point, James Donaldson was my last guest, and uh, once I'm all-star with the 80s Mavericks, so 
be sure to check out some conversations I've had with uh, former players about their careers and just their lives in general. It's a it's a great podcast. I really enjoy listening to it and appreciate uh, you uh, you know uh, bringing your perspective and getting some great guests. Uh, some definitely some people I've, I haven't heard from or heard, knew very little about. So I learn a lot every time I listen to it and appreciate that. And also your Lamar Maddock YouTube page that uh, has some uh, great footage of um, you know of, of pro basketball from the past. Some some really great finds that you have and uh, and really appreciate all of that you do to um, help uh, uh, you keep the history of the game alive. Yeah, it's only like likewise, Jason. I I enjoy this this uh, basketball mysteries of the seventy series a lot, and I'm also plowing through the the older episodes. I'm somewhere in the middle of uh, 2015, so I'm also going through those. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm just uh, it's it's an honor that there are so many great podcast dedicated to basketball history out there, and that we can collaborate on something like this. I I appreciate that. Uh, thanks, everyone, for uh, checking us out. You can find us at harborparoxism.com, and we're on iTunes and Stitcher, You've, uh, and any other place you want to listen to podcasts, we're probably there, too. So just uh, if you if you could, leave us a rating and review if you like what we're, you're hearing. Hopefully, you're enjoying the uh, series. We're going to be here uh, for the rest of the offseason doing episodes on basketball mysteries in the 1970s. So until next time, thanks for listening, and goodbye. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.